Welcome in to this episode of Farscast. Farzine Vasukin here with you. Hope you guys are having a good week. Hope you guys are staying safe. Uh, normalcy is pretty much coming back for the most part. Uh, I know I feel like I open up every show just kind of talking about that, but uh, it seems like we're really doing well uh, with all of that right now. Uh, hey, real quick note, uh, just some housekeeping notes for uh, this week. I was really excited to have Dan Shanka on. Dan used to be a scout for the Chiefs and for the Kansas Jayhawks. He also scouted for Andy Reid in Philadelphia. So if you want to talk to him about football, especially some Chiefs football, he's a perfect guy to talk to. Unfortunately, he had to cancel tomorrow because of something out of his control. So uh, uh, I am going to have someone else come in instead. Jared McMullen of Friday Night Cranks. He will be joining me tomorrow. I'm really excited to talk to Jared. Uh, really, really nice guy. Uh, super, super good, good guy. Uh, YouTuber, uh, entertainer, all that good stuff. Director, producer. He, he does a lot of things. So he'll join me tomorrow on the podcast. Um, so my Facebook page, I think you guys already know. It's I'm able to post again, but I can't. Um, I can't do live videos. But I did find a way around it. I am doing live videos from my personal page. And it is now uh, being shared to my public page. So I found one way around it uh, somehow. But we're going to go with it anyway. Uh, I'm really excited for this podcast. Uh, this guy's been on the podcast with me before. Really, really nice guy. Uh, does a lot uh, in the uh, Chiefs community still today. Doing a Chiefs podcast over at the Believe Podcast Networks. In fact, uh, Jason Brown from Last Chance U, he'll be joining me. Uh, he's also from the Believe Podcast Networks. Uh, former Kansas City Chief, best known for his four touchdown grabs. Joe Valerio joins me on the podcast. Joe, welcome back, man. Good to see you. How are you? Uh, Farzine, great to see you. Great to be back and uh, sharing some thoughts and going ons with your with your audience. And, yeah, it's great to see you, man. Love, love, the, love the night sweater and excited about the hockey playoffs, excited about basketball. Hey, I'm excited about the normalcy that you talked about. I, I actually spent my first day back in uh, an office today, uh, you know, since I've retired from, from football. I've been, uh, you know, I joined the insurance brokerage industry, you know, 20 plus years ago uh, after I retired. And, I actually, you know, technically work out of New York, even though I live in the Philadelphia area. And I was up in our New York office today and just got back a little while ago. It was the first time I've been in an office since March 12th of 2020. So it was, it was kind of uh, nice. And New York, New York's definitely opening up. Today was the first day of, of pretty much no restrictions in the city. And so, you know, got a chance to see uh, what was going on in the city. People still all doing the responsible things, people taking care of each other, which is really good and refreshing good. to see. Uh, our office was not even at close to capacity. Very few people were in there, but I had to go up for some meetings. But but it was good to see. Good to see. Good to be back up in the Big Apple and and getting back to some, like you said, normalcy. You know, I'm not I'm not an expert on all this stuff. I'm not going to pretend to be. But you know what? I feel like this pandemic. I mean, I feel like we could have returned to normalcy sooner. If all these like two week stay at home orders. Remember all of that when that started. It was so weird because every state started at a different time. I'm like, this is not going to work. Everyone's starting to close at different times. Everyone's opening up at different times. It's just not going to work the way the scientists wanted it to. Uh, and I don't think that's science talk. I think that's just logic right there. But look, yeah, one way or another, we're yeah. here. We're here. We're, we're a mobile society. So we, we kind of had to have a coordinated effort, right? Because we're mobile. Yeah. We're, it's, the world has gotten so small, right? From between travel and the way that businesses 
you know, conduct themselves. And, you know, it's the world is, is, is a much smaller place than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago where, you know, we needed to be more coordinated, but we're here. We are where we are. We've gotten through it. You know, people are, are, are doing the right thing. So, you know, I'm just happy to see that. I'm happy to see that, you know, knock on wood, you know, maybe we're turning a corner. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, by the way, I know I, I get keep getting in trouble with Facebook. Can, can you see the TV right there? I can. I think the, I, the, I see Bill Nye, the science guy, at some I, point on there. I, I was like, I'm gonna have to I, look. <laughs> I, I don't want to get into any more trouble with Facebook than I already am. So I'm just gonna just gonna do that. Yeah, make sure you make sure you're careful what channel you have on there, Farzine. You, you know, I look. I talked to you about this. I shared a video of a tennis player giving a racket to a boy. And everyone was sharing it online. It was like one of the coolest videos ever. And look, it's not Facebook steal. I know the uh, people who own the content, they're the ones who lost their shit over it. But what are you going to do? Uh, look, we're finding a way to broadcast this live one way or another. So we I'm are. Sure you're I'll, doing it, Farzine. You're doing it. I'm sure I'll get some creepy friend requests after this, but that's okay. Uh, my <laughs> friend request on Facebook is, is full. Are you on Facebook, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Oh, okay. I, was, yeah. I, I didn't know you were. Uh, why are we not friends on there? What the hell, Joe? I don't know. Um, I, I, I got I have to be honest. Facebook is probably the social media that I go on the least. Good for you. Um, uh, that's yeah. probably a good thing. It's probably <laughs> no. the one that I just go on the least. I, I, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on Twitter, you know, promoting the show. I just started getting into Instagram. Um, you know, I'm, I'm look, I'm, I'm old. I got a lot of gray hair, you know? Uh, but you know, it was, it was, it's enough for me. It's enough for me to be out there trying to be as active as I can on Twitter. I need to probably do a little bit more, uh, in that space, but between what goes on at work and just trying to balance things in my life, I just sometimes just, I find myself just wanting to shut down. I spend so much time, especially during the pandemic, I've spent so much time online. You know, we use Microsoft teams at work, but you know, that whole zoom fatigue is, is starting to set in. So yeah. once, once I, once I shut down my computer at night after work, I, I kind of try to just short of watching television screens. I try to get the screen time down. You know, what's funny. Um, you mentioned zoom and all. I, I love zoom. It, it, it's really awesome. The way you can record and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, broadcast live, all this stuff. Um, so when you were on the, the first time you and I ever did a podcast together, it was back when I was doing the chief zone still, uh, which is obviously retired and all that. But, um, so Zach, DJ, and I, Zach and DJ joined me as co-hosts in the final season. I did the podcast, which was the year we won the Super Bowl. And I remember what we would do. We have uh, a program called Audacity. We each record our own um, audio, and then they send it to me. And I basically, we would all say five, four, three, two, one. And I would have to sync that all up, uh, which was really tedious and all. When we had you, for whatever reason, the recording system was not working. So I called you on my phone and I was pointing, I put you on speaker and I would just point it up to the speaker <laughs> like this. I'm like, and by the way, Zach, DJ and I, we were also on the phone talking to each other while we, we while we did this because there was no other way. I mean, if there's anything good that I learned in this pandemic, it's definitely Zoom. Uh, just oh, yeah, the definitely. features you can use on this. So I wish yeah. I knew about Zoom a lot sooner. I would have had a lot more guests in a lot more convenient ways. Yeah, Jeff Fedoten and I, you know, he's he's our our partner on on the Believe in Chiefs yeah. podcast. We did that with Carl Peterson. Uh, we had we had Carl on, and it was fantastic. I mean, the stories, you know, he's just right. I mean, he was Mister Mister Kansas City, you know, the rebirth of the Chiefs and everything that he did to bring to bring the Chiefs organization to that next level, right during the 
late 80s, obviously, and into the 90s with Joe Montana yeah, yeah. and the Marcus Allen signings and everything. But he had some technical difficulties. So here's what I did, Farzine. I had – so Carl was on his cell phone, and it was really low. And I couldn't get it to – I couldn't get my phone to be loud enough because either he didn't turn – like not to his, uh, you know, the microphone on your phone, but whatever it was, he he must have been talking with it away or on the speaker. So I t- I had to I happened to have a red solo cup next to my desk here where where I have my computer, and I grabbed it and I stuck my phone inside the red solo cup and then put it up next to my Yeti, like you, I have, I have a Yeti microphone. I put it up and I, yeah. so I was letting it echo through the. <laughs> to the solo cup and jeff was like oh my god were you like a physics major or something in college like how did you figure out the audio behind that i'm like i don't know i just panicked and i grabbed the solo cup and i stuck it in so i've got my i've got my bad recording stories too oh man uh yeah i've had um i've had plenty i've had situations where the audio cuts off so i have to abruptly come up with something when i'm re-recording the podcast in the past all uh very good times of course um you know, you mentioned uh, you and I, we were talking before we started uh, recording and everything. Uh, you talked about uh, your time in Kansas City. We were talking about your dad, who was a, a pro boxer. And I do want to talk about that later. But you mentioned um, Joe Montana. Uh, I'm really curious because you were drafted by the team in 1991. Mm-hmm. And you got to keep in mind, uh, you know, I, I was I think when Montana came here, we had just moved to the United States. So. This sport was something we had no idea about. We, we didn't know who Joe Montana was. Uh, can you describe to me what the feeling was like, what the reactions were like when you, your teammates, the city all found out that Joe Montana was coming to Kansas City? Oh, absolutely, Farzina. It, it was, look, look let, me, let me, I'll backtrack up a little bit. So 91, you know, I get drafted by the Chiefs. They're coming off yeah. the playoff year, right? It's, it's the new era. It's the Marty era, right? It's the Carl and Marty era. And, and so they go to the playoffs in 1990 and, you know, things are so super exciting, right? I mean, the fact that it had been the first playoff in forever, you know, Steve DeBerg, you know, a, a name, Christian Okoye, right? Tech Mobile superstar, you know, it just, the Chiefs were starting to build at that point, right? And it was, they were becoming a team that people started to think about again. And then, and then, you know, we go through the 91 season playoffs, right? We with the the rivalry with the Raiders is is like reformed and rebuilt. We pick up this rivalry with the Broncos, right? So the Chargers, we played the Chargers in the playoffs in 1992. Like the AFC West was becoming, Seattle was coming into prominence, right at that point, in the Cortez, Cortez right? Kennedy era, and it was it was just an exciting time to be part of the AFC West. Then. Joe Montana and Marcus Allen show up and it just took things to the next level. I mean, it just, it raised the profile of the city, the team, the organization, like beyond, I think anybody's wildest dreams. I'll tell you a funny story about, about how that, how that all sort of uh, came to, or, or at least to, to make the, the, um, the connection and the correlation between the, the excitement that the city had. So we used to go to training camp in river falls, Wisconsin, right? So yeah, we moved, we moved training camp from, from Liberty, Missouri to, to River Falls, my rookie year. That was the first year. And they tried so hard in, in the city, in the town, I should say, of River Falls. Uh, you know, it was a town of, I think, from my, if my recollection serves me right, I think it was a town of about 7,000 off college. 
And then when the students were there, it was like a town of like 9,000, right? It was like 2,000 students at the, at the University of River Falls, Wisconsin, part of the, you know, the UW chain of schools, right? 10 schools. So division three, mostly known for hockey, um, typical division three stadium. And they tried so hard, Farzine, like they had, like, they had us come in on, on the fight, like the three fire engines and fire trucks that they had in the whole town, you know, the next movie theater was in Hudson, Wisconsin, which was, you know, a good 20 minute drive. You know, you could go to the mall of America in Minneapolis, but it was like a 45, 50 minute drive. So, you know, you, we were out there and they, they tried, but like, even with all the hype, you know, I remember going, I remember going to, going to, uh, going to church, uh, one Sunday when we were up there in river falls and, you know, the, the priest is finishing up the service and he says, Hey, I just want all you chiefs, welcome thank you all but he goes this this is the part of mass when we all pray for the packers and i was like oh man we can't get we're in your town and we can't get any respect right so 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 you know we would get like and even with the parades you know there'd be a couple hundred people would come to practice you know they would watch us and you could actually like hear the fans like talking about you oh man that's 73 he's slower you know you could actually hear them there were so few people watching us at practice and I was used to growing up going to Eagles practices in Philadelphia. And like, you know, there was thousands of people would go right to see the Eagles practice, even when they were bad. And so, you know, it, we go through 91, 92, still playoffs, you know, haven't, you know, the Chiefs are rising and then Montana and Mark Sound come. So put it into perspective, we go up to, to training camp in 1993 for Joe's first, first year there, first training camp and Marcus as well. And we're, we're going out on our first day out on the field um, doing an acclimation practice, basically helmets, shorts, t-shirts, you know, jerseys, no, no shoulder pads, no, nothing, just nothing but a helmet to go out, stretch, get our sea legs, you know, go through some drills, get used to the practice environment, get used to the, you know, grass and everything. And Alex Gibbs was our offensive line coach at the time, right? And he had this great like North Carolina accent and it's hard for a kid from South Philly to do a Southern accent, but I try. And, you know, Alex was, he played defensive back at Davidson college, right? So he was all of, you know, five foot six, right? And here he is coaching these, you know, which by the way, will always in my mind be one of the best offensive line coaches the NFL has ever seen. And so we're, we're walking out to practice and we used to, we used to dress in the hockey stadium, like the hockey facility. And you really had a, you had a blind spot getting to the football field, and we were we were turning the corner around the hockey facility, going out to the field, and you could hear this like <sighs> like this dull So like we're like, what the what the heck is going on? So we turned the corner, standing room only, five thousand plus people packed into this Division three stadium. Stands are full right? All the track around the track where the field is lined, everybody's standing like too deep to watch us in shoulder pads or not even in shoulder pads in shorts and helmets, do a walkthrough. So Alex stops us, right? He, he's, whoa, whoa. And then, you know, try to do my Southern accent. You know, he was from North Carolina. He goes, boy, boys, boys, boys. He's like, he goes, take a, take a look at those stands. And, and we're all like, Oh my God, look at all these people. He goes, I just, I just want you to tell, I want to tell you one thing, guys, guys, they ain't here to see you. I remember you told me that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And he's like, he's like, uh, and your jobs, 
uh, they got a whole lot more important. So let's go have a good practice. And we're all like biting our nails at that point. Like, Oh my God, like this, this. And like, to me, that just, you know, I know it was a really long story. I mean, it gets so long winded, but yeah. like that is summarizes and gives the perspective of how much the organization was risen up at that point because of Marcus Allen and Joe Montana. Right. And granted we had stars, Derek Thomas, Christian, Nikoi, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But that just, it just epitomizes the elevation of, of the team in 1993. Well, I mean, nowadays, a lot of these players, when they find out an acquisition about their team, generally they find out through Twitter. Uh, how did you find out about Joe Montana going to the I, Chiefs? I was actually watching. I was at the stadium, and I was in the weight room with Dave Redman and Russ Ball, our strength coaches at the time. And, you know, we had televisions and stuff. And in the offseason, so, you know, it's not that, like, it's casual, but it's m more casual than during the season. So TVs are on, you know, guys are working on the treadmill. They're watching TV or whatever. And that's where I learned. I was in the weight room uh, at our at the Arrowhead, you know, complex, you know, down the down the parking lot from the stadium, and and I saw it come on the news. They had flashed a, you know, kind of a breaking news that you know the deal with Joe Montana was about to be struck, and and that he was coming to Kansas City. And we're all looking around at each other, like, all right, is it what it was it April first? Like, what's going on here? Like, you know, is this really happening? Like, Joe Mo Joe Montana is coming to Kansas City. Like, we were, you know, in 1991 and 1992, it was Barry Word left. Christian Okoye, right. You know, Jonathan Hayes was a half a lineman tight end, right? I mean, you know, we had basically six linemen, if you consider Jonathan, right? He was a blocking tight end and he had great hands, but, you know, he was, he was an extension of our line. We were a smash mouth, Marty Ball, Cleveland Browns offensive football team, right? We weren't Joe Montana. Like, what are you talking about? Like, and we were like, well, I guess. I guess, you know, this, these mini camps are going to be a lot different than the last ones because we're going to have a playbook to, to, to recognize, you know, I mean, we, and we, on a dime, we went from, you know, running the ball, I don't know, 40 to 50 times a game to, you know, the West coast offense, which was, you know, it was, it was, it was great. And, and it just, it was, it was interesting to watch the, 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 how, the way that the team changed over, right. And, and the kinds of players that we started to bring in um, that, that sort of fit that mold. Um, and, and I think the biggest, you know, the biggest changes were really up front. I was just very, very lucky that I didn't get caught up in the wash because if you look back at some of the players that we had back at or linemen that we had, you know, Rich Baldinger, Dave Lutz, you know, those guys were, they were from the old school, you know, smash mouth you know, football. And, and so, you know, luckily I, I didn't get caught up in that and I was able to use my athletic ability to stick around for a few more years. And, and, and a lot of us had to make that, you know, make that switch um, to being a more mobile, a mo more mobile offense and, and having to, you know, do a little bit more pass blocking than we were used to. You did talk about, uh, you know, trying to be around for as long as you could with with Kansas City. I think uh, your final season was in '95, and then you went to the Rams in '96. Uh, from looking at your um, your stat line, it says you only play, you only started four games. Now you did play a lot. I mean, obviously your four receptions. I mean, that's a huge deal. That's a big part of your yeah. career. Uh, but you didn't start a whole lot. I mean, I mean, you spent a lot of your time as a backup. I know, especially younger sports fans, and I think even some older sports fans as well. They still think that every 
player on the roster lives this glorious life and they all make <laughs> millions of millions of dollars and all. Um, <laughs> in fact, we have a family friend who played for the Detroit Lions and then uh, it was in the 80s and then he played in the USFL for a, a few years. But um, I mean, it, it's it, it's not as easy as it is for someone like you that's, you know, trying to uh, make it every year. Can you kind of give us like, a, I remember Andy Studebaker, he did an interview on 610 and they actually asked him about, about this stuff and how, you know, they gave him like a, a, a car to rent for two weeks and they gave him a hotel for uh, two weeks as well. But then after that, he, he had to figure it out, figure it out on his own. And look, you know, I, I remember on Hard Knocks once someone just signed uh, a lease for an apartment and a day later they got cut. Can you kind of just show, give us the behind the scenes of, you know, yeah, sure. You're on the field, you're doing all this stuff, but, in your personal life, you're also trying to make sure, you know, you're trying to find some comfort and try to have some job security, I guess, is what I'm trying sure. to say. Sure, Farzine. Yeah, it's look, the 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 numbers today, the problem is, is that people see the numbers today and and they see even what a backup or even what the league minimums might look like. Yeah. You know, um, as, a, as an everyday work a day player who's just happy to see their name up on, you know, on the, uh, on, on the locker, you know, on the locker tag above their, above their, their equipment, you know, it, it's, it's not, a, it's not as glamorous as everybody thinks it is. I mean, the NFL is, is, you know, everybody's heard of this thing called the Pareto's law, right. Which is the 80, 20 rule. Right. And you can apply it to a lot of different things. And if you look at an NFL roster, and, and you know anything about the economics of it, 20% of the players make 80% of the money, right? Be especially because of the way free agency went. You know, in 1993, when Reggie White sued the NFL and won for unrestricted free agency, you know, it, it really changed everything, right? It was the implementation of the salary cap because they didn't want, they didn't want football, the owners didn't want to ha happen what happened to baseball where, you know, the salaries and everything just skyrocketed out of control. And it would put, you know, it would put, the finance, the finances at risk for teams, right? If they couldn't control and have a cap to what they paid their players, but the problem with the cap and what it what it did is it it squished out the middle class and 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 I call the middle class player because at that time, especially in the '90s, when they were trying to get an idea of what the cap was going to look like and how you were going to be able to pay your star players and not lose them to, to free agency, but also field a team that was full of depth, you know, 80, 20 rule. If tw let, let, let's just use round numbers because my, my wife's a math teacher and I'm terrible at math. So, so let's say the cap for round numbers, let's say it's a hundred million dollars, right? Round numbers, just so we can use good zeros here. There's, there's 20% of your players on, on that 53 man roster. You know, there's going to be 10, to 15 to maybe let's call it 20 of those 53 players that are going to make the bulk of that because you've got to pay them or they're going to go somewhere else. Right. You, you know, it's the Patrick Mahomes and, you know, Tyreek Hill and all these players that are just, they're going to be marketable out there. Yeah. So what happens is the cap starts to get absorbed. And then all of a sudden you're looking around, you're going, wait a minute, we, we don't, you can't play with just 20 players. Yeah. You can play with 22 starters, but you need backups, you need special teams, you need all these other things. So now we've got to round out our roster with, with a lot of uh, you know, players. And what are we going to do to pay all those players? Well, when the, when the union put in the league minimums, right, for 
one, two, three, four year players, right? All of a sudden you get to the fourth year and you're at the, you're at the maximum of the minimum payment, right? That you need to get. And you're back when I was playing, you know, it was like two step, 275,000 was the minimum you could pay a four year veteran. Okay. Well, if you, if you're not an everyday starter and you're not somebody who contributes on a regular basis, what are they going to do? They can't afford, like, if you've only got so much money to spend, they're going to, they're going to look at the roster and go, well, for 275, I can get two rookies at 130,000, which was the rookie league minimum back then. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, I've got to pay Joe Montana and Reggie White, and I've got to pay, you know, all these big time players, big money. Well, I'm going to round the roster out with a bunch of rookies because, or younger players in the one, two or three year range. And then once players were hitting that four and five year range, if you weren't a full-time starter, you were getting squished out. Yeah. And that's what happened to a lot of players. And it's not, I mean, I'm not doing it like sour grapes, but it just got to the point where if you're, if you weren't an everyday starter and they were still feeling their way around this cap thing, it, it really was the economics of it were, 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 were hairy. And, 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 it, and it was, I feel like I got between that and my injury, that I had in training camp, it just, everything just happened at the wrong time for me. I was actually getting ready to make a move to tight end, um, in 1995. And, and I was actually, for all intents and purposes, I was probably going to be the third tight end and coach Schottenheimer had even talked to me about changing my number and actually going on to the roster as a tight end. Um, and, and, you know, because in, in, in the West coast offense, you needed a big third tight end right? Because you wanted your other tight ends to be the Keith Cash types, right? Or the Derek Walker types who were more receivers than they were blockers. And, and so we had actually talked about it. And then I went and, you know, torqued up my back in, in Dallas. We were playing Dallas in Monterey, Mexico in a preseason game. And that was just, that just put me so behind the eight ball because I lost all those reps um, at training camp that I was supposed to get at tight end. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was injured. I dropped probably I went from 295, 300 pounds down to about 270, 275 over the course of that time because I couldn't lift, I couldn't squat, I couldn't, I couldn't exercise, and I lost a lot of weight. And bam, all of a sudden, it was like, all right, Joe, what are we going to do with you? And 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 you you just get that call. And it, and and I, you know, joke with people all the time. You know, it just it, it ends for everybody, just some sooner than others. And and I was okay with that, but you know, so it was it was partially where I was being a, a fifth year player at that time and what my minimum salary was going to be. Um, the fact that we were still trying to feel our way around the cap, I was hurt. I didn't, you know, I wasn't a full-time starter, you know, like you alluded to, and it was just a bad recipe for me at that point. And, yeah. and it just didn't work out. And so, you know, look, it, it happens and, and, and I totally get the business of it. I get the economics of it, but, you know, going back to your original comment, Farzine, yeah, I mean, look, it, the money was great at the time, right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, to to make two hundred seventy five or three hundred thousand dollars a year back then in the nineties was was absolutely fantastic. But you know, I don't, I won't name names to protect the uh, innocent. But you know, some of our top linemen back then, like we're talking Pro Bowl type players, their maximum salaries that I remember them because it was always published, right? It's, it was all yeah. public knowledge. You can't see Star used to publish everybody's salaries every year. I mean, we had all pro, perennial all pro type players. The biggest salary we had on the offensive line back then was about nine hundred thousand dollars a year. 
Think about that. Think about what Joe Thune signed for. I was just about to look up Orlando Brown, see what he makes. Okay. So we're talking, you know, and these players were actually, you know, and I'll, I'll keep the names out. I don't want to, you know, name names, but, you know, these players were as good or if not more proven than, than a young player like Orlando Brown, taking nothing against him or what he's done. And, and so when you, you think about somebody making a superstar all pro offensive lineman back then making $900,000, right? And then now, you know, I would, what was uh, Thune's? Was it 80 million? Uh, his, uh, there's like a specific number. Spotrek has these weird, uh, his base salary is 990,000, but yearly cash altogether is 18.1 million. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just the way they play with the numbers. So yeah. think about that. Think about, think about that. And then think about the fact that even that's even that player, right? First of all, uncle Sam is going to grab half of it, right? Yeah. At least. Okay. Right. Between state taxes, you know, we used to have to pay taxes in every state that we played in Farzine. So, um, you know, you had to pay, you had to pay income tax when we played in Colorado, California, like I used to file probably, I don't know, 14 tax returns when I was I playing. I know that. Did you players still today have to do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Actually oh. it's funny because there was a, the tax accountant that I used was a guy out of New York and he was actually part of, of, of the, um, they rewrote some tax uh, regulations and rules, laws, whatever you want to call about the way that entertainers are taxed because the way that it was taxed before they proposed this to the IRS and it passed muster, there was um, like, let's say, for example, again, I'm Mr. Round Numbers, right? Because I'm, I'm terrible at math. So let's say somebody was making $160,000 a year and they were, um, uh, you know, they were, there was, there was, um, let's just call it 16 games. Okay. So what they, how they used to tax you is it went in the state of Colorado when you played on Colorado in Colorado on a Sunday, they basically said, well, if you made $160,000 last year and you played 16 games and one of those games was in, in Colorado, you owe us, you have to pay tax on that 10 grand. Okay. Right. So it's 10 grand per game that you're making. And, and the tax guy that I was working with, um, and it wasn't just me. It was, he had a whole stable of NFL players. He was yeah. like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's one day out of 365 that that player is earning that money. So then what he did is we would, we would file a tax of 100, one 365th of my salary. I would pay tax on to the state of Colorado. So that's, that's how they got around gouging players for, so you just, Multiply that out for the Joe Montanas of the world at the time who were making three million, or the Joe Thunies who were making eighty million, right, or eighteen million a season. Yeah, you know, you, you got it. It was, a, it was, it was a, you know, it was, it was a landmark, right? That they, that they did this it was a, land, it was a landmark tax change. But so, you know, half, half the salary's gone to Uncle Sam, right? I mean, you're an NFL player. You, you know, you start trying to keep up with the Joneses a little bit, right? And when you're a young you're a young player and, you know, Derek Thomas, who's an established player, or Neil Smith or Joe Montana or who might pick a name and they roll up and, and, and not that we had guys that were super extravagant, but they come in, they roll up in their brand new Jeeps, they roll up in their brand new pickups and all this stuff. And, you know, you're a rookie or a second year player and you're driving around in, 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 in a car that you had in college. Well, you're like, oh man, I got to go get a car. I can't show up at the stadium in this. And then they go out and buy a new car. There it goes cash out the door. 
family want to come see you play. You're flying family around. Most of the time, players didn't live in the, in the cities that they that they played in. You know, so yeah. you got maybe you buy a small home in your hometown. You're renting a townhouse in Kansas City. Yeah. Money's just going out the door. And so this back then, at least these two hundred and fifty, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars salaries are at the end of the year, you've got like a hundred thousand dollars left in the bank. Now, granted, I'm telling you, that's great money. Don't get me wrong, but it's not something you're going to retire on if you only play for five or six years. Do you know what I mean? So it's like people think it's, you know, it's crazy. And then like in in my particular case, you know, my, my wife and I, in my last season with Kansas city, my wife was pregnant, you know, pregnant with triplets and I'm looking at, you know, raising three kids all at the same time. I'm thinking about 18 years down the road, putting them in college and, you know, moving back to Philadelphia and all those expenses that come with it. And it's like, you know, I, I, I only took one, one season off to, to really um, help my wife with, with our daughters after they were born. And, and I was still working out for some teams. I worked out for the Panthers. I worked out for the Eagles, didn't work out. And I went to work in the insurance industry because what little money I was able to save by being a player and having a, a, you know, a little bit of a nest egg. I didn't want, I didn't want to have to spend it all. You know, I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to supplement my savings. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's back then, you know, pre Reggie white, you know, pre two thousands when things just went like, like just exponential, these salaries, you know, players, you know, think about some of the players around Kansas city, you know, I mean, that are, that were work a day players, right? I look at, at at friends of mine, you know, Keith Cash in the banking industry, Dane and Hughes was in the banking industry, does broadcasting now. Yeah. Um, you know, people, you know, have to they got to go to work because what whatever they were able to save, they don't want to just spend it because you're all, you're behind the eight ball too, Farzine. I mean, you know, I, I I've I've often told people that, you know. I feel like sometimes the NFL playing in the NFL for let's call it six years between, you know, trying to get back in the league, having that cup of coffee with the Rams, my five years with the chiefs, like, you know, I think it actually put me behind the eight ball a little bit because when I, when I quote retired right from football, which I have a funny, a funny story about, about retiring. Um, and and what my dad told me when I retired, um, you know, it, it was like, you go out of the game and then all of a sudden you're thinking, all right, what's the rest of my life, you know, going to look like. And, and, and your, your quote, you know, like I said, you're, you're air quoting there retiring. Um, you got, you got 40 years of your life to live. Right. And you can't, you can't afford to just, you know, put whatever, whatever money you had. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta get to work. And, and I think a, a lot of people um, sometimes they, they don't realize that for, we'll call it the, the, the middle to lower end players who don't get a chance to, to play very long. I did want to ask you about uh, one of the more heartbreaking moments. And, and look, there've been a lot of those in chiefs history uh, in terms of some uh, just stunning losses. Uh, and, and you and I chatted about this a little bit before on the phone, um, but it was the game in 1996, I believe January of 1996, when you guys played the Colts, and look, I think everyone knows the story. Yeah. You guys lost that game 10 to seven. And there was just so much hype that year. I mean, I'm actually looking at the stat sheet right now, looking at the uh, offensive and defensive starters. I mean, you've just got talent all around on both sides. So I'm sure there was a lot of hype that year and just everybody 
thought this was going to be the year for the Chiefs. Uh, I mean, especially defensively that year in the 90s. It was just an insane year for Kansas City. But look, everyone knows the story about Lynn Elliott. He attempts the three field goals, misses all of them. Uh, I know in the AFC Championship game against the Patriots, when D Ford was offsides, and look, I get that in the moment. It's always the most crucial moment in a game. People always point the finger at that player or that moment. And I remember Travis Kelsey, even during the parade, he would say, oh, we had 55 and he wasn't offsides. Like even players have made references to certain crucial moments that cost the team a game. Um, you, you know, look, I've always been a believer, you know, the refs never lose you a game. It's never one player or one turnover. There are so many factors that play like that AFC championship game, for example, you know, if, if you score in the first half of that game, maybe the whole D Ford situation isn't as big of a factor as it ended up being. Um, but a lot of Chiefs fans, they look at that game. It, it's referred to as a Lynn Elliott game. Uh, as a player who was there, who was on the field, can you give us the reaction? Because so many fans point the blame on Lynn Elliott. Now, you guys are a brotherhood. You guys are teammates. Yeah, You guys don't necessarily do that kind of thing. But were there players that just really felt awful about that? Or, or maybe did they just held it against uh, Lynn Elliott. Take me through uh, what it was at the end of the game and in the locker room after that game. Well, uh, where I'll start with it, Farzine, is is number one, I think it was up until that point, I think it was the closest mentally we had ever been to the Super Bowl. Obviously, short of playing in the Super Bowl, you know, in the Len Dawson era. But up until that point, it was probably the closest mentally we were to the Super Bowl, even though physically we were closer to the Super Bowl in 93 when we went to the AFC championship game, right? That was a different run. You know, that was a magical run, you know, beating Pittsburgh in overtime, going down to the House of Pain, right? And and beating the Oilers, you know, on their turf after they won 11 straight. Like we almost, like when we got to Buffalo, it was like, Okay, when, when we lost that game, it was heartbreaking because we were we were this close to getting the Super Bowl physically, but like we we came off that emotional high and we're like, all right, hey, that was a great that was a great run. That season, the way that we dominated so much on on defense and the way that our offense put up some great numbers, we were clicking on all cylinders and in, in the run game. Steve Bono was you know, having a fantastic, uh, you know, he was just, he was just having a, a fantastic season. You know, we had that, that crazy game in, 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 uh, in, um, Phoenix when, you know, we had that 76 yard run where I like escorted him down the, down the field. And then I ended up scoring again in that game. It was like, we just had all this great stuff going on. And then to get that close, you know, mentally to have home field throughout to be 13 and three yeah. and to, for so much hype for people like, cause you know, the, the, the Super Bowl that year was in Phoenix and, 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 you know, to beat Phoenix in Phoenix, the way that we beat them um, in that game, not that, not the Phoenix, we, we were thinking we were going to play them, but to be on that field in, in Tempe and to think, Oh, this is like, smell it here guys. Cause this is what it's going to be like. We're going to be back here in, in, in February, January, February playing yeah. the Super Bowl. It's just like that season just had so much to it. And I think that's what, that's what took the emotion into the way that a lot of the people who were around the team 
felt about like what Lynn Elliott was unable to do in that game by converting those field goals. But as a player, you know, you're all you've got right in the locker room. And it's, it's, you know, there's a million cliches, you know, whether it be the biblical cliche of, you know, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone, you know, let he who has never had a penalty that's cost a team a game, be the one to cast the first stone, you know, People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? Like yeah. we, we all make mistakes. And I think that's the one thing that players understand. And that's why, you know, you, you brought up the great point on the D Ford thing. Like players just like, look, it happens, man. It's like, it happens to all of us. And, you know, there's no reason why it should have even come down to Lynn Elliott missing three field goals. Like that, that game, we should have dominated that Colts team. We we should have we should have pounded them. We I mean we were averaging five yards a carry in the first half, and it was freezing. I mean it was ice cold game, and we like abandoned we abandoned the we abandoned the run in the second half, and we started throwing the ball. And Steve was you know it's his first big playoff start, right? Um, it just was a comedy of errors, you know that that go that go into something like that. But as a player. You look at you look at a guy like Linelli, and, and we still we still go back and forth to to this day. You know, long snappers and and their kickers and and their holders and punters, we have a bond, and 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 I I, I still have that bond with. You were a long snapper. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. And so you know, I think back to my time that I spent with in Lynn and and Louis Aguiar and Brian Barker and and all the, the Nick Lowry and and everybody that was you know part of that whole long you know snapper kicker punter you know, trio, um, you know, I, I just, I, st- I still talk to Lynn and, and we still communicate and, and I, I, you know, he's a great guy. He's a fantastic guy. He's an unbelievable human being. And, you know, it shouldn't have come down to that. And, 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 and so I, I would defend a teammate to the, I take it to the Hill because I think that's what players do in the, in, in the locker room, they take care of each other because you know, you're all you got. And, but I do understand, I do understand why, why fans and why the city would be emotional about that because we were so darn close, yeah. so darn close to, to getting to the Super Bowl that year. How, uh, how was Lynn Elliott in the locker room after that game? He was, I mean, he I- was a mess. He was a mess. He, he was, he was an absolute mess. He, he, had, he, he put the whole weight of the entire chiefs organization and the city on his back. And, yeah. and I really felt for him for that because I think it really did affect him. It was, just, you know, it was it for him. You know, I mean, that was it. And, and um, you know, I think he understood why his tenure was over and why he probably wasn't going to play, you know, in the NFL any further after that. And, and, yeah. and that's what happens to all of us. You know, I mean, we, we, we end up, you know, something, somebody bigger, faster, stronger comes along and, and it ends. And, and so, but I felt really bad for him for that because he had the entire weight of the city on his shoulders and, and he, and he was dejected and, and he felt it and it was palpable. It was palpable how hard that hit him. Oh, by the way, real quickly, before I forget a uh, big shout out to the uh, real Kansas city chiefs fans page. Uh, they've been sharing all of our chiefs content lately. So a uh, big thanks to them for sharing this as well. Um, yeah. It, it, look, I know you and I have talked about this before and I know you said you're, you're glad, you know, Facebook and Twitter didn't exist back when you played. Uh, Cause listen, man, I, I mean, you have some shithead shitheads out there who will tweet a college kicker. Oh, go eat bleach or, you know, I'm going to, you know, find your family and all these kinds of things. Uh, 
And look, I know a lot of people listening are going to say, well, Chiefs fans would never say that. Well, there are a few of those out there. I mean, every fan base, okay? Because um, you just never know. I mean, some people really do take it personally. And listen, look, here are my teams, okay? I'm a Chiefs fan. I'm a Royals fan. I'm a KU football fan, okay? Uh, like, my teams have... Like the Vegas Golden Knights are playing soon, okay? My teams have either choked it or have been terrible or have blown big leads. Like, I, I've just learned to kind of laugh about it because, listen, it is sports. It's not, you know, your daily life. Like, this isn't life or death, okay? And I get, yeah, sure, I, don't get me wrong. I curse and shout at the TV just like any sure. other sports fans. Yeah. But I think, you know, some people just do take it Because here's one thing, and I think the last couple of weeks I've had a, a different perspective because – uh, Eric Warfield and Jason Dunn, uh, both have played in, in the Carl Peterson era. Oh, sure. Um, they've been on my podcast lately, and, and we had some honest conversations. Uh, Eric was open and honest about his DUIs that he had here in Kansas City. And he mentioned uh, someone just sent a shitty comment to him once when he was doing his podcast uh, that he does the Chief Concerns podcast with Marcus Dash, um, a good friend of mine. And he mentioned that, look, words hurt. You know, uh, you know, things that people want to say or people want to bring up his past and whatnot. Uh, I, I understand that. I'm not debunking that at all. Here's the thing at the end of the day. No one's ever going to say that kind of thing to your face. Like everyone has a lot to say, you know, on, on the phone, on the keyboard, whatever. But they're never going to say it to your face, um, which, which, you know, I, I kind of and please let me know if I'm part of the problem. Because, look, I make jokes about Brody Croyle and, you know, all these bad players we've had over the years in Kansas City. Um, a lot of sports fans do, but. Uh, you know, you kind of forget sometimes that, you know, these people are human too. They've got, they've got kids. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story and I'll let you re respond to this. I remember when Charlie Weiss was the head coach of Kansas, his first year, his son, Charlie Weiss Jr. joined him. And I remember he shared a story when his dad was the head coach at Notre Dame. Uh, he would have to go to school every day during that final season and hear kids talk about, you know, how they wanted the head coach should be fired. And I, yeah, I kind of thought about that because he and I are the same age just about. And I thought, man, that, that, that has to hurt, you know, people talking. Cause listen, your dad could be an accountant. No one's talking about his job, right? But, you know, right. your dad is the head coach of a, a big school and, you know, you have to deal with the criticisms on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gotta be, I think it's gotta be actually harder on the families to, than it does because, you know, you know, is, 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 is your children, see you as, you know, whether it's you're, you're their mom or you're their dad or you're their uncle or cousin or brother or sister or whatever, that, that's how they see you, right? That's how your yeah. family sees you. They just see, you know, my family saw me as, you know, little Joey, South Philly kid, grew up, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that's who, that's who they see me as. No one, no one ever saw me as, you know, an NFL player. I mean, they, this is not the way they perceive it. And, I think we lose a little bit of perspective in that matter when we're thinking about those those people out there that are professional athletes or they're on a stage. Now, I think as a as the so I think it's harder on the people that are around them than the people. I I wouldn't take it. You know, I take everything with a grain of salt. If someone was to say to me, "Ah, oh, you know, you know, here was Joe was you know drafted in seventh round, he only or second round, he only played five six years, blah blah." Like, okay, what? Well, that's I did it, and and that's what I did, and and. That would hurt if somebody said that, you know, he should have played longer, or he didn't contribute as much as he did or whatever. But like, 
I just know that, Hey, there's, there's this with the old Spider-Man saying with, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Right. So Mm -hmm. I understand that. I understand that when you're, when you take on a job and a role like that, that you're going to be in the public eye because the economics of it are that that's what drives the salaries. That's what drives you being on that team is the fans coming to see the games. It's TV contracts. It's all the things that go with, with being an athlete. And I get that. Um, but I do think, Farzine, I think you're right. I think sometimes we, as fans, will forget sometimes that, that, that these are these are just people. I'm just yeah. a guy who happened to get lucky and, you know, had, had some, you know, size, speed, whatever, and was able to, to get catch some scouts eye and get to college and get to the NFL and do it. But I'm just, I'm just a per, I'm just a person. I don't, you know, we're not made of, you know, athletes and, and entertainers aren't made of anything differently than, than, than blood and bones and skin, you know? And so I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm kind of rambling, no, but, I, but, it, I, but it is great, but it is, it is, it is really, um, it's gotta be harder on the people around that person because they don't, it's, it's not fair to them to hear to hear somebody, you know, Charlie Weiss, to hear his kids hear about, you know, whether his dad should be fired or, you know, and, and the way that I always look at it is it's like anything in life, you know, I'm, I'm in, I've been in management now since I left football and, and, you know, one, one thing I, I always, I always do is I always remember to, you know, uh, criticize privately and, and praise publicly. Right. And, and I, and I always remember that when I'm working with teams and trying to coach people to be better professionally or, or whatever they're doing, you know, I always keep in mind that, um, well, number one, you know, you've got to keep things in perspective and that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's about the behaviors that you want to be critical of rather than the person, Yeah. you know, um, if, if, you know, when Lynn Elliott, you know, use that example again, you know, he misses that field goal. It was the behavior of, of what happened. It was his leg, not hitting the ball at the right angle and the ball going through those skinny little uprights, right? That's it was the behavior of what happened. It was the action. It wasn't who Lynn Elliott was. Lynn Elliott did not want to miss those field goals. Yeah, for and, sure. And I think we, we, we forget to separate those two things sometimes, you know, and, 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 and we do it sometimes, you know, when, when we're, when we're scolding kids or, or, you know, for doing something bad or wrong. And, you know, we forget that it's, you got to criticize the behavior, not the person. It didn't make Lynn Elliott a bad person that he missed those field goals. It, it was, they were bad behaviors and they were bad actions that, that were, that came out of whatever happened there. But, you know, and that's what I think sometimes we lose sight of because remember it's, 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 and it's only gotten worse, right. With social media, it's, you're just, you're a person on the screen. And, and it was so funny when I would see people in the community, you know, and, and when I was in Kansas City, and you're right, how differently they would act when they saw you and then, then when, you know, you were just a, a helmet and a number out, out on the field, right? Yeah. And Je- my wife, Jen, used to hear it all the time in the stands. And, and you know, um, Louis Aguiar, uh, you know, was, was a great friend and, and, my, and my wife be- be really befriended his family. And, and so... Um, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Aguiar, you know, would be sitting there and, you know, Louie, you know, shank a punt or whatever. And it was like, you know, Aguiar, you stink. You're the worst. And it's like, here's his mom and dad, Good right? Lord. Here's a guy that's made it to the pinnacle of his profession and people in the stands knowing full well that, that that's where the family section was, right? Used to be 
used to be on basically the, the 30, 40 yard line right behind the bench. I mean, that's where, yeah. where the family's on the, under the overhang at Arrowhead. And like, you know, they're, they're just yelling out things about, about the players. And it's like, you know, like, oh my God, like these are, you know, what, what are you doing? Like Louis a great guy. He's got great parents. They, they used to feed us all the time. They'd make this fantastic, you know, uh, Mexican uh, meals for us, like home cooked meals. And like, they were like the sweetest people you'd ever meet in your life. And they were so good to my wife. She was young. We were young. And, you know, they would sit together and talk at the games. And we, when our families went out, we'd introduce, but it's just like, I just remember her coming home and being so wrought with like emotion about that, about how, how hard that was for her to get used to hearing people talk about players you know, you stink, you're the worst, you, you know, replace this player, do that, whatever. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I, I go back to that comment. It, I think it's harder on the people who are outside the circle than it is even the player. Because when someone would tell me I stunk, I'm like, oh, whatever, I'm out here. I'm out here doing it. And, and, you know, <laughs> you're not, you're or whatever. Like, they'll you know, talk you, shit about you but they would gladly trade places with you no question about it of course of course and they would and 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 they, and they would all and i'm sure people would always say that fans would always say that like i would you know i would take you know for that kind of money i'd take that kind of criticism that's that's fine okay well you know and i'm and i was always okay with it and i think a lot of players were always okay with it you know what's but funny? It, it was, like i said and I don't mean to cut you off. Here's the thing. It's yeah. like everyone wants, you know, the glory and the social media followers. It's funny because, you know, we're talking about families. Uh, Brittany Matthews, I mean, she gets lit up. And look, when she does all these selfies, you know, in the middle of a game, like when a touchdown happens, okay, are they goofy? Yeah. Would it be annoying if Tom Brady's wife did that? Of course. But she's not killing anybody. She's not harming anybody. She's not doing right. anything wrong. Um, she's just supporting her man. I mean, that's, that's what wives, girlfriends do, but she gets killed sometimes for this stuff. And I remember someone sent a tweet saying, Oh, you know, wouldn't it be great if Patrick was single and he could do, you know, so many things with different women. And she responded to that tweet. And that guy got lit up on Twitter to the point where I think he actually, um, he, he didn't block, uh, his, he locked his account where it's private and you can't read his tweets. So you have to be following that person in order to see it. So everyone has something to say. And then when the athlete or the family member responds, and look, there was an incident with this clown. Um, I'll refrain from saying his name. We, he and I used to podcast on the same site. Um, just some guy who thought he knew it all. He attacks Tom Brady's child, his five-year-old at the time, five-year-old daughter, Um and I think people started talking about how and Tom Brady was pissed. Like he actually hung up on the station after like a certain uh, a length of time passed for his weekly radio segment. He, he was like, OK, you know, I've, I've reached my time. I'm getting paid for this. I'm going to hang up on you guys now because um, he let it be known. He was upset that someone on that same station made a comment about his daughter. And the discussion did come up. Look, athletes don't like the criticism, but they understand it. But when you make it personal or even involve their family members that way, like what the hell, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's all, it's out of, it's out of bounds. It's off limits. Yeah. It's, and it should be call me whatever you want. I, I understand the risk and I understand the reward of, of being in a position like that. And I think some people just feel like because players are ultimately funded, right. Air quotes again, if they're fun, they're funded by the fans, right. I mean, if, if, if fans stop going to games, if fans stop watching television, there weren't advertising dollars, you know, you, you see it with, with, with other sports, right. Where 
if, if it's not the fans and the funding and, and the popularity, they, the other sports don't make it to the NFL level. And, and I think fans to a certain degree feel like they have more because they feel like the players are getting something from them that they have the right or the yeah. privilege of being able to be critical of it. And I and pay I for your that. house is what a lot of I fans get, say. I get that. I get that. And, 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 but like you said, when it becomes personal and it gets it, there's just this, there's a line and there's a line that people cross where it yeah. just, it goes from being a critical fan to being, you know, like I'm, I'm, look, I, I, I'm just as guilty of it. I'm a huge Sixers fan, right? Philadelphia kid, you know, watched them my whole life. Dr. J, you know, world be free going all the way back to the Daryl Dawkins days. I mean, he always been a huge Sixers fan and, you know, Joel Embiid did, did not have a good game the other night. Right. I mean, it was terrible. He was over 12 in the second half. And it's like, you know, in my mind, I'm going, Joe, come on, like, dude, like one basket, like, you know, and, and then, and then the, the athlete in me goes, eh, well, I was the guy that, you know, snapped one over the goalposts with the Rams. You know what I mean? Like, who am I? <laughs> there goes that stone again. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think you just, you, you, you get, you get caught up in that perspective because you get, you get so emotionally tied into sports. We get so emotionally tied into it. I saw it, you know, I coached youth sports. I coached high school football for 11 years and, and I saw so many families and parents and family friends just get so tied up in that moment. And it's like, guys, this is not, you know, this is, we're not, this isn't world peace. You know, we're not curing cancer. We're not doing surgeries on, on operating, operating room tables. Like this is high school sports. This is youth sports. You know, I was coaching fifth grade basketball and, you know, I remember a, a brouhaha, you know, that a coach, you know, had, you know, it was like, Oh my God. You know, he went at one guy went at, went after a referee, a 16 year old referee followed her out a, a, a man, a male, 45 year old male to a 16 year old Jesus. female and, 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 and followed her out into a, a parking lot, um, you know, um, and was like, you know, berating her because of some calls that she did or didn't make in this fifth grade basketball league. Yeah. So I've took it upon myself to, to knock on his door, you know, and I, I don't, I don't recommend anybody doing this i'm not saying i don't condone this kind of behavior it's just the emotion took over me because it was a family friend and i just knocked on the door and i said listen i just i'm just going to tell you one thing you're you're and i i didn't i didn't threaten i didn't say i'm going to do i just said basically you know i left a lot of annotate you know a lot of uh unspoken words and i said you're not going to do that again yeah and that's all i said i didn't threaten i didn't do i just just wanted to get my point across that this this isn't this isn't that important and, you know, if you want to enjoy your plastic fifth grade, you know, basketball trophy at the end of the year, by all means, enjoy it. But I just said, you know, you're not going to do that ever again. It's just so weird. Like some people take the whole thing so per personally, too. Like I, 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 my family and I, we know of uh, another family. Uh, they actually took their kids off of a baseball team because the coach who also has a kid on the team would just berate these kids over over a sport. Like, I mean, you know. It's it's little league baseball. Like, chill out. Um, I did want to share a funny story. Kind of going back to the whole family thing. I attend. There was a UFC fighter named Chris Gutierrez. He's not like a famous fighter. Um, he's not very well known. But I did watch him in a promotion called World Series of Fighting. It's now they've rebranded and it's now called the Professional Professionals Fighters League. Excuse me. Uh, but when he was fighting at the World Series of Fighting, uh. I remember in front of me, there was a family of four 
and they all like pulled out their phone and they're all recording his entrance. And I'm thinking, okay, this definitely is, is the family. Like right. it has to be. And obviously they're more passionate about the match than we are. Uh, neither of these guys are from Kansas city. So I, I don't have any emotional attachment to either one of these fighters. Whereas uh, all of a sudden you hear th- th- this person's mom, the sister, and I think even the girlfriend, they're all shouting. And there were a few, there were a group of people, you know, to my right, a few rows down, they're like, Oh yeah, go Chris's mom. Yeah. Yell louder. And you're just hearing these comments. It's like, I'm thinking to myself, there might be another fight in the stands yeah. if this if these comments continue. But it's like, you know, I even I even like looked at that moment right there. I'm like, you know, listen, I've been to some regional MMA events where I'm sitting in front of or behind um, the family members, and I remember there was one fighter he went for a cheap shot. Uh, you, you know, you know, in boxing or in UFC, uh, at the beginning of the round, they'll touch gloves real yeah, quickly. Sure. Yeah, one fighter actually touched the glove and immediately went for a spinning back kick, which, look, I think that is just completely cheap. <laughs> um, but I didn't say anything because that guy's family was sitting right in front of me. So, you, you know, it's just, you know, moments like that kind of do make me realize, OK, look, you know, these people, their families, they, they take it to heart, too. You still have the right to boo and cheer. I think you should. But be a little careful with what you say because you never know who you're sitting next to. Right. Exactly. It's just like anything in life. You know, you just want to, you want to act as if, you know, act as if your mom is, you know, standing next to you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah I'll, um, yeah. And listen, uh, I, I get carried away, especially in hockey games. I mean, the golden Knights are playing right now. And I remember we were sitting second row and there was a fight right in front of us and we're just shouting. And there were some people to our left throwing middle fingers, all that great stuff. Cause cause hockey fights are great. They really are. Yeah. By the way, are you a hockey fan at all? I am a huge hockey fan. Yeah. I love, I love my flyers. I love hockey. Um, just, oh, you know, you grew up in Philly with the broad street bullies. I mean, you know, there were some great, great teams, you know um, and, and we, we were, uh, you know, we used to, I mean, you know, love, love going good friends with Brian prop Gaffaw. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're buds and um, See, I'm still learning about this sport. And honestly, man, I'm surprised this is not a very popular sport in the U.S. I get it competes with the NBA because they start and finish just about the same time. But this is and here's the thing with me, like Kansas City doesn't have a pro hockey team. Well, they do, but they're not an NHL team. Sure. Um, I've always heard it's easier to like a sport if you have a team to follow. And because I have a, I go to Vegas several times a year when there isn't a pandemic. And so when Vegas got a team, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get behind this team. And, and they, they've become one of the best teams in hockey. Uh, they're in the final four right now, but it becomes easier to follow when you have a team to follow. And during my time, just starting to follow hockey, I'm thinking, why is, why is this not a popular sport in the U.S.? I think it's such a fun sport. It's so physical. It, it, it's kind of like football and soccer. Obviously, the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The premise is similar to soccer. You know, get the puck yeah. in the back of the net. But it's also a lot like football or boxing or, or MMA where there is a lot of physical contact, and people love that in the U.S. at least. I'm surprised it's not a popular sport here. I think part of it, Farzine, is I think hockey is um... – it's not, well, number one, it's not culturally ingrained in us, right? The same way yeah. the, the same way that soccer is not, right? It's just, it's soccer, I think, is getting there because, you know, s- soccer is, is going to get more traction than hockey, I think, in the super long run because anybody can play soccer. You grab a ball, you put a penny on, 
you could make a you could make a net out of two broomsticks, right? You know, a goal. Um, hockey's tough. You know, hockey's tough sport. It's 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 ice time. You know, it's you got to get ice time. You got to get a lot. It's a lot of equipment. It's pretty expensive. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a lot of travel. It's, it's, it's off hours because of the ice time thing and the limited resources of the rinks. I mean, I think football is a little bit more culturally ingrained. And even though there are some equipment, maybe there's some barriers to entry from an equipment perspective, cause you got to have the helmets and the pads and everything. People just get behind the whole thing of the war of football, right? They, the football represents war, two armies on a, on a front, aerial raids, ground attack. Like it just has everything that I think Americans look for, you know, in a sport basketball is similar in that, you know, basketball, you can play anywhere. Right. I mean, you get a hoop. I mean, you know, you see, you, know, you get a, you, I've seen, I've seen, you know, milk crates nailed to a garage as a basketball hoop. Right. So I think, I think there's just something about hockey and it, it just, it, the confluence of, of things that, that don't allow it to become part of our mainstream and I think part of it's, it's just not, it's not us born and bred, right. It's not American born and bred. You know, I think people still feel, look, they look at hockey and they see, think of it as a Canadian European type sport, right. Where basketball, baseball, and football, right. Are American sports, right. They're, they're American born and bred. And I think there's a, there's something to that about, about those three sports that hockey doesn't have. It's still seen as a far, you know, and I don't mean any offense by this word, but it's still seen as a foreign sport to the U S right. And, and it's not something that is culturally ingrained here. And then you throw all the things that do you put in the barriers to entry and then people just throw their hands up and go, I, I, yeah, it's not enough goals. You know, there's not enough scoring, yeah. And while it might be physical and at any particular moment, a fight might break out. You think Americans would be all over hockey, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they have, don't get me wrong. I think hockey is popular, but not like it is in, in other parts of the world or the way that football is and, and, and the basketball and, and baseball are. It's just, there's just some, something about, I think that cultural part of it that, that, that holds it back from being like fully mainstreamed here in the U S well, you mentioned fights. And I remember game one of the last series that the golden Knights were uh, against the Colorado avalanche. They were getting their ass kicked seven to one, but it was so entertaining because there was some drama in that game. A lot of fights back and forth. Like I watched it all the way down. Whereas most people usually, you know, if you're losing by six scores, um, in football, I mean, you're, you're turning off the TV. You're, you're doing something else. You're probably drinking your sorrows by that time. Whereas, right. you know, with this, you know, it's like, it's so even a scoreless game is so interesting because a lot is still happening. So yeah. look, I, I really wish people would give this sport an opportunity if, um, if, if you don't watch it, but that's just me. Um, uh, I did want to ask you about another sport, um, boxing, because your father, uh, was a pro boxer. What was that like? Uh, growing up as a kid watching your dad because I've heard when you know uh, a pro fighter whether it's boxing or UFC MMA whatever I heard it's a lot harder to watch when you're watching your loved one get hit in the face and I've there was someone who I did know of and I, I watched one of his fights and it was kind of hard to watch him get hit um, what was that like uh, having yeah, a dad I, as a boxer I, I mean number one it was great because he taught me the sport and, and, and I boxed, um, amateur from the time I was nine until I was 14. And, and I That's loved awesome. it. I loved every minute of it. I think it helped me so much with my hand eye coordination. 
it taught me um, how to take a hit. It taught me to be tough. Um, you know, and, and then obviously, I mean, I'll turn profile. You look at my nose. Once this thing started getting to the point where it was, my dad was like, son, you're either going to have to like get that thing broken or we're going to have to get some cartilage taken out of that thing. Cause you know, you're going to, you need a helmet with that nose. But like, that was my dad. My dad had a great sense of humor and he, he had a great way of busting you. And, and so I stopped, I stopped boxing and I started focusing on, on football uh, baseball, football and baseball mostly. Um, and then I, I wrestled, I played basketball. I did track winter track. I did all other sports and I, I got away from the boxing thing when I was about 14. Um, but you know, my dad, I never, unfortunately I never got to see my dad box. Um, I was, my dad was, is, was, was pretty old when he had me, he was in his forties. Oh. So he was, he is, he was long retired by then. And, you know, back then when you, when you were a professional boxer, you know, in, in the Philadelphia circuit, I mean, you worked. I mean, my dad was a truck driver and, and he was a yeah. warehouseman. So, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't make a living boxing. Uh, unless you're boxing. like, even UFC fighters, like unless you're Conor McGregor, who just got like a $600 million deal on his whiskey, like everyone, yeah. a lot of fighters work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, my dad, my dad, but he loved it. And, and all of his friends were boxers. I mean, you know, my dad, my dad trained with, with Joe Giardello, who was the middleweight champion of the world. And, and, um, you know, they fought out of the same gym, Olympia gym in Philadelphia and South Philly. And, you know, it just, you know, I just, I just love being around that culture. You know, we would go to, to see the fights um, in Philadelphia uh, to blue horizon and he would take us. It was, a, it was our, our little boys day out and, 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 you know, he got, he got me into horse racing. I, I love, you know, going to the track with my pop and um, you know, it was just, it was, they were great, great ways to spend, spend time together. And, you know, it, it, it was, um, you know, it was a sport. I, I my, my brother boxed, uh, he was amateur. My uncle, uh, my dad's brother was amateur. He did all the golden glove circuit and everything in Philadelphia. And funny story, my dad, my, my, my grandmother didn't want my uncle Anthony to box. So he fought under my dad's name a lot. Um, which was, which was interesting that she didn't mind that my dad boxed, but she did mind that my uncle did. So I don't know, there was some favoritism there or something my dad used to joke about. Um, but you know, it, you know, it's it just, it's just, he, he just taught me toughness. You know, he, he taught me how to be tough and, and um, you know, like typical example of, of the street smarts of my dad, you know, when I retired from football, I was mentioned earlier, I would tell you a funny retirement story. You know, my dad was like, uh, you know, my dad loved, he loved sports. Like he just, he just loved watching. He loved watching us play as kids. He just relished it. And he wasn't a big football, like uh, he didn't know a lot about the game, but he, he loved the game. And I'll, and I'll never forget, you know, when I retired, you know, and I, I called my dad, which I called him on everything that happened in my life. He was, he was my hero. You know, he, he was like, well, son, I, I'm super proud of you. And, you know, you did something that you wanted to do and you set out to do. And, you know, now you got to move on to the next part of your life. And he goes, I want you to remember one thing. And I thought Farzine, I thought he was going to tell me like, you know, you're the greatest ever. Like, I love, you know, you're so proud of you. He goes, he, this is what my dad goes. He says, he goes, Joey, he goes, you just got to remember one thing as you move on to the next phase of your life. You're nobody now. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, it was like an uppercut from my pop right in the gut. Right. I'm like, dad, like what the, and he's like, no son. He goes, I, uh, I just want, you know, he's like pop. I just, you know, cause he called me pop. He's like, pop. I, he's like, I just wanted to say that because whatever you do in the next phase of your life, he goes, you got to bring value, son. You got to bring value to whatever you do in the next phase of your life. Yeah. Football's not going to carry you. And that he goes, true. that's why yeah. he goes, and I, I'm telling you, I hear, you know, I, I, we lost my dad, you know, many years ago. And 
I, I still hear that echo in my head, like you're nobody. And it's not because he meant it because I wasn't nobody. It wasn't an attack, a personal attack on my, me as a human being. It was, it was an attack on what society can do to you when you yeah. get to a certain position. And all of a sudden I thought I'm going to walk into the insurance industry and I'm going to just, uh, uh, everybody's going to want to do business with me because I played football with Joe Montana. And I, you know, I, st- you know, Joe Montana stuck his hands up my butt, right? Like, you know, uh, nobody cares. And my dad used to say it all the time. And you, you, you probably heard it in the movie Bronx Tale. And my dad was very much like Lorenzo, the bus driver. And he looked exactly like Robert De Niro. My dad is, is a spitting image of Robert De Niro. And like, he, he would say things like, son, Joey, nobody cares, pop. Nobody cares. Like, it, cause he just, it wasn't like he was being pessimistic. He was just giving me the realities of the world in that you have to find yourself. You got to find your own way and you've got to please yourself. And, and that's why, like, when we were talking about all that stuff about fans and stuff, I'm like, you know what? That's noise. Cause I, I know what I was able to do. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that, that piece of advice my dad gave me as, as an old school, tough South Philly boxing dude was, you know, when he said, you're nobody now, it's the, it is literally the best piece of advice I ever got as an ex NFL player, because it was his courage and willingness to tell me that I was going to have to bring value for the rest of my life and do not sit on your laurels. Do not rest on the fact that, you know, big deal, big deal. You caught a touchdown from Joe Montana, big deal. There's a lot more problems that are going on out there in the world that you need to help solve. And there's things, purpose you need to be, you need to be, you need the best father you can be, the best coach you can be, the best teammate, the best husband, you know, whatever it was, I needed to be the best at all those other things and not, not just make it all about me. Oh, I played in the NFL. So, you know, bow down, right? Like who cares? My dad was like, who cares? And that's like when I was telling you that story, when he met Joe Montana, like, he goes up to Joe Montana in the locker room. He goes, Hey, Joe, it was nice to meet you. And, and, you know, Joe's like, Hey, Mr. V, nice to meet you. And he's like, I got to tell you something, Joe. He goes, I, you know, you're a good Italian kid. He goes, I get it. And, and I'm channeling my dad now, right? You can hear the accent starting to come out, right? The South Philly, and he's starting to come out. He's like, Look, he's like, Joe, I get it. You're, you're like the best. He goes, But I got to tell you something. He goes, this isn't my favorite sports moment meeting you. So Joe's like, he's reeling Joe in, right, with his South Philly, like, storytelling capabilities. And Joe's like, all right, Joe wants to play along now. He's like, all right, well, Mr. V, you got to tell me then what is the best sport, you know, memory you have. He goes, oh, Joe, let me tell you. Joe, Jersey Joe Walcott's coming to Philly to fight, to fight Rocky Marciano. And who comes to train at our gym? But the Rock himself. And he's like, Rocky Marciano. Then his team – asked me to spar with him because they said, hey, this Valerio kid, he fights a lot like Jersey Joe Walcott. So let's get him in the ring with, with Marciano so that he can, you know, so he can show him, you know, they can, they can work on their sparring, you know, training for the fight. So it was like my dad. So he goes, that Joe is my proudest moment. And like Joe Montana's like, hey, Mr. V, let me tell you something. He goes, if that were me, that would be my proudest moment because meeting a schlub like me, he goes, that's nothing compared to sparring with Rocky Marciano. So Joe's giving it back and forth to my dad. And then like at the end of the conversation, they like shared a big hug. And like, that was the kind of guy my dad was. He could make anybody feel comfortable. And when he saw Joe Montana, the greatest quarterback ever, I'm still saying it to this day, I love you, Tom Brady, but Joe Montana is still the greatest quarterback ever. Uh, you know, it was like, it was, he was so, so what? He was Joe Montana. So what? He plays football. So what? 
Like that's, yeah. and it wasn't because he didn't have a respect for what Joe did, or he wasn't a fan. He just had this greater picture, this greater view that like, so what? He's a kid from Pittsburgh, big deal. You know? So he that was his four Super Bowl rings, big deal. Like it just, that kind of grounding is what I think everybody needs in their life. Yeah. And so, you know, and so far as to this day, I still hear it all the time. You're nobody now. And not because I, I, I kick myself and I, I say I am nobody. It's not that it's more about bring value. And, and I think, you know, it was best lesson I ever had. I'm sure you followed the sport of boxing, you know, over the years, I've got to ask you your opinion because Today, boxing is so crazy, and look, I'm guilty of it because it does grab my attention because I don't watch boxing a whole lot. I can give you a few names today, uh, but I can't tell you, you know, much about the sport, but I will admit, you know, having following uh, these YouTubers, Jake Paul and Logan Paul, and just recently Logan and Mayweather had a match. I know um, Jake Paul is going to fight. He just... uh, knocked out uh, Ben Askren, who was uh, a former wrestler at Mizzou. He's going to fight another Mizzou wrestler. In fact, Askren's teammate, Tyrone Woodley, who I'm a fan of. So I'm actually very interested in seeing that. What are your thoughts on seeing these YouTube stars pretty much take over boxing in such a big way? I, I, it, I, it's, it's taken a little bit of, a, of it away from the sport for me. I'm, 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 I'm an old school purist. Yeah, you know, I I think for me to just to be honest, Farzine, not not no offense to any boxing fans out there. I love the sport. I I if I had if you know if I had a son, I am or daughters too. My daughters could have boxed if they wanted to, but you know I would encourage it. I you know I, I think it's 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 you know just at at a certain level because I think there's some things you know you can get to a certain level where it does become maybe a little bit more dangerous, and you might not want to see like you said earlier, a loved one get hit in the head, but. Um, I never would have said to a, a, a child of mine or anybody in my family, don't do it. Like if you, know, if you want to try it, try it. Like just, you know, just be safe, do it safely. Um, for me, boxing, just to me personally, and again, not no offense to anybody who loves it and follows it to this day, because I do love the sport itself. I lost, I lost it with, with the end of the heavyweight era is where I, where I kind of, it kind of, you know how you like it, a lot of things in life, you, you kind of like, like a lot of times, you know, with people my age, their fashion sense, right? Like I jumped off the, I jumped off the track in the nineties and that's about where my fashion sense ended. You know, like I'm on that, I'm still on that platform. Cause you just, you know, some things yeah. in your life, the music you listen to, right. Everything now after eighties or nineties rock to me is noise. Right. Cause that, that's, I'm old, but like the, um, the heavyweight era of, of, of homes, Ali, Norton, Frazier, Spinks, like, um, you know, to a certain degree, you know, even, even some of the, the Sugar Ray Leonard's and the Thomas Hearns, the Roberto Duran's, like once it got past when those guys prime, I, I just kind of like stopped with the sport. Like I just, for some reason, there was something about it. I don't know whether it was subconscious or what. I just kind of, I just kind of, it just, it just fell off. It fell off the track for me. I don't know why. I don't know whether it was because it, to me, that was like the romantic era of heavyweight boxing when you had these, it just Howard Cosell and the voice and all that stuff. You know, it's funny because my, my wife and I were, we've dated since high school and I'll never forget when I brought my wife home to meet my parents, it was hysterical, right? 
So um, I'm bringing my wife home, my now wife, not one my wife then, she's my girlfriend. So I bring my girlfriend over to meet my parents. And it's Friday night, and my dad's watching the Friday night fights. Yeah. Right? This was 1987. Okay. This would have been, uh, it would have been uh, February, like late February, 1987. And I bring my girlfriend home, Jen, and I introduce my parents. And what's on? The fights. Friday night fights are on, right? And we were about to go out on a date on a Friday night. And uh, my, we're just sitting there in, in the living room. And my, my parents are like, like typical Italians were like the TV was always on. I, I don't know what that was about my family. Nobody was even watching it, but it was just on. Yeah. And the TV's on. The fights are on. My dad's not really watching it. He's having a snack. My mom's doing something. And, and we're all trying to make conversation. My, my mom's getting some stuff, you know, little snacks or whatever to bring out to, to us to entertain us while we're there before we go out on our date. And, uh, you know, Jen just thinks she's going to, she's going to say something and tell she, my wife is a super ath- great athlete. She played sports and, and all that stuff. So she, she really got sports. So she's trying to connect with my pops and she goes, wow. She goes, I just don't, I just don't get boxing. She's like, I, I don't know how two grown men could get in the ring and just beat the daylights out of each other. And my dad starts laughing, right? Like, and that's how great my dad was, right? He, he starts laughing and he, he starts giggling. And, um, and, and he's like, oh, oh yeah. And I, he goes, and he says to her, he says, I hear you. <laughs> and, and so I, I didn't have, I, I did, I had to bridge it. Like it was, it got so awkward because I knew that someday she was going to find out. And I'm like, well, I said, Jen, I said, my, my, my dad, my dad was, was oh, you didn't tell her. <laughs> and she's like, I know it never oh, came up. Joe. We had just started dating. We, we, you know, we had just started, we, we had, we had met during football season, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Of that year. And, 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 and then, and then we didn't start dating until February. Well, I can remember the date like it was yesterday, right. It was February 12th was, was our, you know, was our first date. And, and so like, we, we weren't really dating that long at that point, And, and it just never really came up. Like, you know, and, and in any of the short conversations we had up until our first date and then some subsequent dates after that. And it's like, you know, and my dad, he handled it like a champ, the champ that he was. He's like, oh, he goes, yeah, I, I, I get it. He goes, I hear you. I, I think it, I think it's pretty stupid myself. And I had to tell her at that point. I'm like, well, I said, that's hilarious. So she, she, we still, oh, we still, we still laugh about that. She tells my daughters that story all the time about, you know, eating her size eight, eight shoe right there in, in my parents' apartment. So that's great. Uh, well, Hey Joe, uh, Joe, I mean, we talked about so many things. Uh, I really appreciate your honesty uh, about a lot of these topics, yeah, you know, sure, you know being you. a backup. I know that's not the easiest thing to open up, especially family talk. I mean, yeah. that, that, and I really hope people listening definitely have a, a different perspective hearing those kinds of stories, but, um, sure, Hey, look, uh, I really enjoy your podcast with, uh, Jeff Fedotin, uh, over at the believe podcast networks. Like I said, I, I've had a couple of guys, uh, Jason Brown coming up soon and Eddie Law. He's been on the podcast a couple, a couple of times. Great guys and you as well. I, I really enjoy the podcast. If you guys haven't subscribed to the Believe in Chiefs podcast, it's basically anywhere uh, you can catch uh, any podcast for that matter, uh, just like this podcast. Um, and uh, Joe, what, what is your social media? How can people follow you? Um, at Joe Valerio 73 on Twitter. Probably the okay. 
probably the best one. And that's the same, my same handle for, for Instagram too. But like I said, I, you know, I'm old, look at all this gray hair up here. As far as the, you know, I, I, I try, I try my best to, to do as much, but you know, Twitter's probably the best. That's where I, you know, we publicize the podcast and I will make some tweets during games and things like that. Um, yeah. you know, exciting times. I'm, I, I, I do need to do a better job. I know that, but you know, but I do, you know, uh, I'm, I'm much more active on, on LinkedIn because, you know, I've been, I've been in the insurance industry now, you know, what, for 24 years. So four times as long as I played football. So LinkedIn is sort of more my social media because that's where my business contacts are. Um, and that's what Chad uh, Henney said after that, uh, that Browns game. (laughs) So, so, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's where it's, that's where it's been at for me. I'm, I'm an adjunct professor. I, I teach leadership at, at a, at a, at a local university here in the Philadelphia area, uh, so, you know, I stay busy with that and, um, you know, so, so, uh, you know, between the podcast, the, uh, you know, the, the, the teaching, I'm actually working on my MBA at Villanova. So I'm, I'm actually a, an old student. Like I walk in, I walk into some of my MBA classes and, and people think I'm the professor when I walk in, they all straighten up and here I am, I sit down with the student. So, you know, I've been doing that and between that work and, and, you know, that, that's keeps me, keeps me, keeps me pretty busy. So, uh, you know, getting a chance to do this with you is, is, is the highlight of my day. So I, I love chatting with you, Farzine. I love what you do out there on social media and, and covering the Chiefs and all the things that you're doing. So I'm happy to join you anytime. Just give me a ring, and I, I would love to join you if anything ever comes up. So Yeah, no, you're, you're always one of the more fun guys to talk to. So I always appreciate everything you've done for me and how gracious you've been with your time. So we'll definitely have to talk uh, during the uh, early portion of football season for sure. Uh, hey, Joe, uh, like I said, always great talking to you. Uh, stay safe, you know, uh, and then uh, we'll definitely uh, tuning in, keep tuning in to the uh, Believe in Chiefs podcast. Sounds great, buddy. Go, go Knights. Go nice. Yeah, go we're, down, nice. we're down we're down two zero. Right, All right now. I see so you. We, I see you peeking up there every once in a while. We uh, we need some. We need some. <laughs> I gotta go. Uh, I gotta go see how the Sixers are doing against the Hawks. I haven't been. I haven't been multitasking, so I gotta go check out how, how my Sixers are doing. Appreciate you guys downloading and listening to this episode of the podcast. If you guys enjoyed this episode, share the links. Uh, we're everywhere: Facebook, YouTube, uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, everywhere. So share the links. Uh, Other than that, Joe and I have got to go catch our teams. You guys enjoy the rest of your nights. Take care.